0: Hi everyone. For
1: this episode of Hidden Histories, I spoke to Louisa Ebenike about the Nigeria-Biafra War that took place in the late 1960s and sparked a humanitarian aid crisis. Rather than focusing on the politics and action of the war itself, Louisa talks about the culture that surrounded it and the artistic movements that came out of the conflict that still inspire literature and art today. She recommends some artists and writers who emerged from the war, so I would strongly suggest keeping an ear out for this information so you can explore the topic in more depth. I hope you enjoy the podcast. Louisa Evanike, welcome to Hidden Histories. It's a pleasure to have you on the podcast. So we're going to talk about your research on the Nigeria-Biafra War. So this is a war that happened in the late 1960s. It's, it's a war that I'm not particularly familiar with could you explain for people like me who haven't really heard of it who haven't don't really understand what went on um when did it take place and, and between what powers
2: so um the war started in 1967 but just to remind you a little bit nigeria was a, a british colony and it gained its independence in 1960 in the years after independence, there was a lot of attention. There was a sort of a, a sort of internal struggle for power to a certain degree. I mean, this isn't uncommon in you know former colonies where you know, sort of divided rule policies don't seek to foster a sense of a cohesive national identity, and so you had these differing groups who had never really had anything to bring them together as a nation. And so the moments of unity that you saw were, were mainly in the. Anti-colonial struggle, and of course, once independence was granted, there was very little to to bring them together. They'd been governed as separate protectorates—the northern and southern protectorate—for for a significant amount of time, and so there was sort of very little sort of cohesion. And so there was this internal struggle for power, and also for just a kind of there was sort of a lack of a collective sense sort of what Nigeria was, who they were as a people, and so tensions was sort of bubbling up and. In 1966, there was a, a military coup, which was followed by a counter coup. The reporting of it, particularly in Britain, actually, presented it as a sort of takeover by the, um, the Igbo people from, from the southeastern part of the nation. And so that fed into existing tensions. And so a series of um, massacres took place in, in, in northern Nigeria um, targeting Igbo people who then fled to the the southeast, which is where their homeland is. And a series of negotiations took place, which ultimately failed. And uh, the people of the southeast, stating that they no longer felt safe in Nigeria, declared uh, Biafra an independent state. Nigeria responded initially with police action, but then it escalated into a full-blown war, which was fought until 1970, when Biafra essentially collapsed and, and rejoined Nigeria.
1: Gosh, it went on for actually quite a long period of time. It um, did. Yeah. And I imagine caused a considerable damage and it became a humanitarian crisis. Am I am I right in saying that?
2: It did. I mean, it was essentially um Biafra wasn't planned. It was establishing a new nation and, and all that goes into it. There wasn't a sort of military ready to fight. It was the military initially consisted of members of the nigerian military who were from the southeast during that period of killings during the pogroms uh, military were targeted um, so those that were able to survive and make it back military men were targeted alongside civilians but there was also sort of quote unquote cleansing mm. of the of the military and so those who made it to biafra then sort of formed a military but it ultimately ended up conscripting citizens because there weren't enough people to fight, there weren't enough funds to to fight with so people weren't prepared but, but probably even more so in terms of starvation because you know again there wasn't adequate food supplies and as the war progressed Biafra lost territory and so it became sort of more densely populated and the nation lost its seaports and it was blockaded by Nigeria so food struggled to get in, you know, age struggled to get in. And so actually the vast loss of life came through starvation and starvation-related illnesses and and massively affected the very, very young. So you see these images of children with with core bellies, um, starving, and and also the very old, older people who were already more vulnerable. And so there was an immense loss of life.
0: Mm.
1: That's awful. I, I mean, how did people? How did people channel their um, distress? I mean, you've been working a lot um, into the um, artistic and literary representations of this. So, we're going to go on to talk about how it's memorialized. But how? What about at the time? How were people producing art and literature which you can look at to understand the level of suffering that was going on?
2: There, there was. I mean, I suppose. I suppose one thing to remember is that that even within times of conflict, there are moments of of quiet. So it's not, it wouldn't sort of be relentless, you know, hour by hour. Mm. And what I find particularly interesting about Biafra was there was a conscious engagement with the nation's artists to actually um, produce and engage And also to sort of come up with a collective vision for the nation. So, so for example, a writer like Chinua Achebe was was enlisted, along with other intellectuals and scholars, to to write um, this document, um, the Ahiara Declaration, which was essentially Biafra's articulation of itself. So, So part of that document would speak to the value and the importance of the arts in Biafra. So it was trying to carve out and articulate a vision of itself. And the arts was central to that. And so you had a number of writers who were active in writing during the war, actually they published some creative works during the war. You had artists like Obira Udechukwu, who were part of the propaganda unit, who actually used their art to create images that would circulate to uh, to express the the Biafra experience and to make people aware of what was happening in Biafra. So they were enlisting their artistic skills, to actually try and raise awareness and make the wider worlds pay attention. And and it's worth mentioning that during this period that the Nigeria Biafra war was being fought, the Vietnam War was being fought, so most of the world's attention was there. And so the artists were really important in actually trying to make the world see and recognize and understand what was going on in, in Biafra.
1: OK, so, yeah, I was wondering if, if art at this point in literature was um, an act, took a very activist role. And that, so did, was that successful in, in um, attracting the attention of the global media? So I
2: think by 1968, um, I think the summer of 1968, there were, it was increased, increased um, presence or awareness of what was happening in Biafra around the world. And um, the international press did cover it and I think it was the, the first time that, that this kind of conflict was covered by the international press and the images of of you know, young children with washioka bellies as starving children shocked the world and actually, you know, this, this idea of sort of starving people in Africa actually has its roots in the Nigerian-Biaca War wow. so those images shocked the world and, um, and did, did help bring attention to what was going on but interestingly, the way that Biafra seems to have been remembered, if I, if I sort of talk to, to people old enough to remember the coverage, people tend to remember the war as a famine as opposed to a war because of those stark images of starvation. Mm. And so that seemed to be what got the world's attention. But but in terms of sort of a lasting memory or understanding of, of that war, it seems to have shifted more to the... the you know, I guess starvation as a weapon of war, but more on the front of starvation and famine as opposed to the conflict itself and, and sort of what happens to bring about that conflict.
1: That's interesting. So the image of starvation, that very potent and powerful and common image of, of people starving and suffering, especially children who are emaciated and um, have distorted stomachs, et cetera, that has its roots in the Nigerian-Biafra war. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's I didn't know that. That's amazing. Because that's obviously an image that's perpetuated for charitable purposes all the time. So that's, it's interesting that it started there.
2: Yeah, and there was multiple charities like Caritas there. I know um, CAFOD was another charity that was, was, was raising funds and part of their awareness raising and, and sort of essentially marketing part of their attempts at generating funds for, for, for those that, that were suffering during this conflict was to emphasise the starving children in Africa. Yeah. And so that's sort of where, you know, in terms of charities and, and, and the way that uh, many charities raising funds for Africa have framed their campaigns. Um, Médecins Sans Frontières is another charity that emerged out of the nigeria Civil war It emerged because uh, many doctors who were part of the French Red Cross were not happy with how you know how humanitarian assistance was actually implemented, and so formed that organisation out of lessons learned from the Nigeria Africa. Mm. So actually, a lot of the landscape of of its fundraising, of awareness raising, that that thinks about Africa again had its roots in in this conflict and shaped the way that uh, charities spoke about Africa.
1: So, at what point did did the Western superpowers get involved, and what? What did they achieve or not achieve?
2: I mean, the, the Western superpowers were were very much involved from from the get-go. I mean, Nigeria, as a former British colony, Britain had a vested interest in its survival. And so, I mean, arguably, the war would not have happened if not for British intervention. There were initial reports that, you know, when we when wanted to break away... That the, the more, if they're want to pursue um, any sort of activities to be, prevent Biafra from separating, that they just of the mindset, you know, go your way. Fine. And Britain actually wanted to maintain the integrity of the borders of its faith. In part, I think because um, Biafra also included the oil-producing region of of Nigeria, and so again, there were economic interests. Really, and and Britain backed Nigeria and helped to. Arm Nigeria, so so they wouldn't necessarily have been the, the support, the necessary support, material support for the war had had Britain not intervened. And then, if you think about some wider politics of the region, I mean, although France didn't come out in support of, of Biafra in a in a very sort of visible and overt way, it was offering some some support to Biafra because again, for, for France a week in Nigeria would benefit France because France also had interest in the region, you know, having many colonies and former colonies in in the western part of Africa. So there was was sort of almost like, I guess, western superpowers were were thinking about their own interests within this conflict and acted accordingly based on where their interests lay.
1: Mm, That doesn't sound familiar at all. (laughs) It's it's not that they've done that ever. Anyway, so... uh, what were the lasting effects of the war, and how were they? How were they initially commemorated? I mean, uh, so the, the war. I, I should. I should go back and say that the, the war was eventually won by by Nigeria. They were the sort of victors of this of this conflict. What was the effect on the people and, and the and the the output, the creative output of people and. How was this period of conflict and suffering um, memorialised? So,
2: the fell in 1970, in the 70s in Nigeria, there was an oil boom. You know, it was a sort of prosperous time. It was a kind, it was kind of strange sentiment. Um, when the war ended, people were fatigued, people were tired. People had lived, you know, extraordinarily difficult lives over the last three years. In the bank accounts of, you know, people from the southeast, the, bank, the Nigerian bank accounts were emptied. And they were given £20 at most. And so there was a lot that was lost. So lives, businesses, homes, you know, those that returned to their houses, their houses also might have had, you know, furniture stripped, mm. given away. So people really lost everything. And there was a sort of official message in Nigeria, no, no victim, no vanquished. That was the idea that almost we draw a line and move on. But of course, people were carrying immense trauma with them, and so there was this sense of okay, the nineteen seventies—you know—we can build back. You know, we, we can't dwell. We survived, and so there was a general approach taken to just look forward. And then, of course, you know, you still have the same uh, government in place, the same military government in place, so there wasn't the space to really reflect to commemorate. And so the focus, the energies are placed on rebuilding. And so as a result, and, and this and this has sort of been the, the way that Biafra has been treated in Nigeria, and the Nigerian government doesn't necessarily want to dwell on that history either, because of course they are implicated in, in a, a number of atrocities. So there's a te- there has been a tendency just to sort of ignore that history. And this is partly why I'm interested in the arts because I see the arts as a site where these conversations are happening in a way that they're not happening in public spaces or not happening in a meaningful way in public spaces. And so part of my interest has been to use um, the arts as a site for, you know, for remembrance, mm. but also for conversation. And there's sometimes, you know, you hear people saying, well, oh, why are you digging up the past? But the past is there. I mean, even though it's not being spoken about, you're seeing how the past shapes and impacts the present and you cannot talk about it but it won't disappear and it manifests in different ways you know in our present moment
0: when you're ready to pop the question the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring at blue you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online choose your diamond and setting when you found the one you'll get it delivered right to your door
1: Yeah, I mean, <laughs> these people know what historians do when they say, why are you digging up the past is kind of the point. Um, you know, that's what we do. It's like we dig it up, we reinterpret it, we talk about it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think art can really capture a sense of conversation and emotion. It endures and it's it's timeless in that. And it's a very powerful vessel. I think that you know, as a historian, I guess you can look for so so much evidence, even if it has been covered up by various archives or documentary sources, the arts and the sort of material culture of a of a period is really, really important. I mean, how do you think that this has endured into the now? I mean, do you think that there was a artistic movement that you saw in the in the wake of Vietnam? That has has endured into the into the modern day, or do you think that um, this was a quite an isolated artistic period? I think
2: in the in the wake in the immediate wake of the war, there was a, a collective feeling of sort of fatigue, of tiredness, and people were deflated. They'd invested their hopes, their lives, and you know their, their money, and invested so much into the success of this nation. Um, and if you think in the broader context of, of processes of becoming, so people were s- sort of subsumed into a Nigerian identity, were working towards Nigerianness, whatever that was, but in the wake of independence, there was there was so much um, hope for independence. People were many people were truly invested in the idea of of Nigeria and so were mobilizing and operating along those lines. Then, of course, as things deteriorated, Biafra became an independent nation, and people then galvanised around a sort of Biafran-ness and tried to articulate what that looked like. And with the fall of Biafra, you know, we're now reintegrated into sort of into Nigeria. So it was, it's over the course of about ten years or so, there were so many shifts in in um, you know in national identity and, and ideas of belonging, sense of self. And I think the arts became an important site for inquiry. And so there was a, a tendency actually across the humanities to try to ground themselves in an, an enduring identity or in an enduring sense of place and space. And so for amongst the Igbo scholars and artists, particularly, there was a kind of return to a sense of return. So so amongst creative writers, there was a sort of return to writing Igbo language literature. There was renewed efforts to standardize Igbo language. Artists had been working on, you know, on on different kinds, different sort of artistic aesthetics, but there was a renewed um, engagement with particular Igbo artistic aesthetics that, you know, predate, you know, colonial rule. And so there was a sense of trying to root oneself in cultural practices of their people as a way of trying to, I guess, anchor themselves in, you know, in in this changed nation. So they were back in Nigeria, but it was a Nigeria that was forever changed. And there was a the sense of a need to kind of root oneself after all that loss, to actually root oneself and locate oneself within that, that changed space. So within the, the visual arts, there was a, um, a return to a particular art form called uli, which had been practised by women, you know, sort of particularly using lines and symbols as the a, as a, as a balancing of negative and positive spaces. And so this kind of practice was incorporated into more contemporary artistic practice as a way of again reconnection and rootedness to root oneself in Mm. in in these kinds of traditions
1: yeah it's like forging a sense of identity that really that, that there's not been an opportunity to do that since the independence so you know you go straight from independence to this war and then finally there's this opportunity to create some kind of Identity through artistic license.
2: Just to add to what to what you've said, and, and I mean, of course, we're, we're speaking about the Nigerian of War, but of course, colonialism itself was a major disruptor mm. and was a very traumatic event, and so. These kinds of inquiries had already begun, this sense of trying to navigate and negotiate with space and again locate yourself within your traditions. But it was it was done in a different way prior to the war. So prior to the war, it was a sense of coming to terms with this entity that was Nigeria, this imposition that was Nigeria in many ways. And the the, the changing cultural space landscape, you know, that was grappling with British educational system and of course kind of British. Culture that was imposed upon people, and so there was a, ret- a sense of return that was that was navigating kind of the, the colonial presence, um, but it was reinvigorated and took a different direction in the wake of the war, and and sort of new trauma had been inflicted on the people, and there was a, a, a renewed need to try and again navigate and locate oneself in one's traditions and one's cultures and so it was sort of a so there is a kind of continuity but at the same time you know there were sort of quite distinct ways of approaching it or distinctive responses to the changing situation
1: yeah so I for one and I'm sure other people who are listening to this would would love to to know where where we can look at some of the some of these artistic outputs and through literature as well. I mean, can you recommend any artists to look at in particular that would encapsulate the experience of the Nigerian Biafra War? Yeah, so
2: in terms of um, visual arts, I mean, probably the most prolific uh, visual artist to have engaged the war was someone I mentioned earlier, Obi-Wara who, you know, who, who in the wake of the war kept sort of returning it. I mean, you can see the lasting impact it has had on him. In that, it worked so for decades after. Continue to return and to sort of digest and try to make sense of 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 the war through through his practice. Another artist would be Uchil Keke, who was an important figure in the in the sort of reimagining and, and kind of questions of return. And so he spearheaded the narcissistic movement at the School of Arts at the University of Edinburgh, which. Very much rooted this artistic practice in Uli, as I mentioned previously. In terms of, of writers, I mean somebody I haven't mentioned, but it's important to mention is is Christopher O'Keebo, who was a poet, you know, one of Africa's most promising and celebrated modernist poets, who during the war decided that he was going to fight for the Biafran cause and and, and lost his life in the battlefield, and probably became you know Biafra's most high profile. Casualty. But writers like Chinua Flora Wapa, Uchiha Macheta, and then more recently Timamanda and Bozi Adichie, have been writing this war story. And I think it's also quite significant that it's not just the generation who lived through the war who are writing this war story, but those born after it. It has also shaped their realities, even though they didn't have direct experience of it. That trauma still sits within families and communities. And so this is part of what i'm interested in is is how you know younger writers are still returning to this question of the war because it's still its effects can still be felt you know whether it's within the intimacy of their immediate
1: families or their wider communities so that artistic output is still it, it endures even now it does mm louisa thank you so much for coming on the podcast that was fascinating and i know you've already had it's early but you've already had a really long day so i really appreciate <laughs> that you managed to maintain your um, your trail of thought throughout the process
2: my pleasure thank you so much for inviting me on it's been really nice talking to you